Jesus, we are humbled. We don't deserve your grace. We don't deserve your mercy. But we receive it by faith. We are thankful that no one has disqualified themselves from your grace. Even as I pray that, I feel like there may be a handful of people in here. You came in feeling very dirty today. The message of the cross is that there is no sin that could disqualify you from his grace. His grace is sufficient. And we receive it again by faith this morning in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen, amen. Well, good morning. I haven't had a chance to meet you yet. My name is Mick Murray. I'm the equipping pastor here. And I shared this uh, last week, but before we pivot and dive into John 17, uh, I also direct Life University. And we have a course coming up uh, at the end of April uh, called Gender and the Bible. And I encourage you, if you're interested in this course, you can square up your uh, camera app on that QR code and, and read more about it. But essentially, we just looked around at the confusion in our culture and wanted to address the topic of gender from a biblical standpoint, of course, with compassion uh, and honoring the nuance and complexity of this topic. But uh, if you struggle with gender dysphoria, or maybe you have a, a child or a friend or a loved one, uh, who does or has come out as transgender, or, or you just have questions about the nature of gender biblically. Is it fluid? Is it static? Uh, what about pronoun use? And so on and so forth. And we want to look at these questions from a biblical standpoint and address them with compassion. And so uh, you can check that out, jump in with us if that is of interest to you. Uh, well, we are in our uh, series, Union, Communion, and Partnership. And again, the banner word over Antioch this year is the word unity. And so we're looking at several passages of scripture that are unpacking this concept of biblical unity for us. And right off the bat here in 2023, we've been looking at John 17 for a couple of months now. And over the past couple of weeks, we've been going verse by verse through John 17. And we're going to finish that out today, or at least my portion. I'll kick it back to Jimmy uh, next week. But we're going to look at verses 20 through 26 today. And today we'll really focus on that word unity specifically. If you remember a couple weeks ago, we looked at this idea of dominion, that Jesus' glory is revealed through the way he exercises dominion, and he modeled that for his disciples. Last week, we talked about holiness and all of this from Jesus' prayer, and today we're going to focus on unity. And unity is a buzzword in our culture today, and so I want to unpack what is it, you know, is it possible, what does unity look like in the body of Christ? It doesn't take long to look around and see all that is disunifying, uh, that is dividing us today in this country and around the world. Uh, it's March Madness, and it is amazing to watch the passion on display at some of these games and the disunity that can occur even within households, houses divided over something as simple and as silly as sports team loyalties. But of course, it goes much deeper than that, right? We can be um, disunified uh, socioeconomically. We've seen racial tensions tear our, our nation apart. We have generational divides. Of course, there are political divisions over things like health care and immigration and education, the environment, and so on. And then in the church, in the body of Christ, we have hundreds, if not thousands, of denominations globally. In the midst of this, there's this push for unity. It is, again, a buzzword in our culture today. Uh, and, but what is it really, and how is it attained? I did a quick search on Google, because Google answers all things. 
how might we be unified as a species? And it yielded some interesting results. Uh, but I found this one thread where people were discussing how we could be unified as a, as a nation, as a people. And here are a few quotes that, that came up. Some of these sound great. Uh, one said, we must set aside our differences and work together. That I say, amen, but I would ask, which differences are we setting aside? Another quote said, we must decide to positively connect instead of exploiting one another. We must treat one another with the attitudes of mutual care and love. Again, to that I say, amen, but how do we define love? Another one said, self-styled philosopher here, he said, we find our own good. We don't accept it from others. We weigh it on merit as it is good to us. We do not unify to you or to anyone else. That would not be to my good. It would be to yours. Uh, to which I would say, how do we arbitrate between definitions of good and so on and so forth? And I think Jesus' prayer gives us a window into his core mission as he understands his commission from the Father. And I think it helps us address some of these questions. So again, I know you just sat down, but if you would stand with me for the reading of our passage today. I'll read it for us. You don't have to read along with me. Uh, but then we're, we are going to pray a prayer together. We've done this at the end of the last couple services. We're going to do it right after this verse, so you can remain standing after the verse. And this prayer comes from the early church, the first couple of centuries of the church. Uh, you can find it in a document called the Didache, and we'll pray it together. The early church patterned it after Jesus' prayer in John 17. So I'll read the scripture, and then we can pray together the prayer. John 17, 20 through 26, Jesus prays, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these know that you have sent me. I made known, known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. And if we pray together, please. We give thanks to you, Holy Father, for your holy name, which you have made to dwell in our hearts, and for the knowledge and faith and immortality which you have made known to us through Jesus, your servant. To you be glory forever. Remember your church, Lord, to deliver it from all evil and to make it perfect in your love. Gather the church, the one that has been sanctified from the four winds into your kingdom, which you have prepared for it. For yours is the power and the glory forever. Amen. You can be seated. So we're going to break down this portion of Jesus' prayer verse by verse here and see how we could respond uh, as the church this morning. So he starts off, Jesus says in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. 
Now, again, for context, this is the Last Supper. Jesus has been eating a meal with the disciples, the 12. He's about to go to the cross. He has lifted his face to the Father, and he has been praying this prayer that's been recorded in John 17. And now he shifts. For several verses, he's been praying specifically for his disciples. And now he says, I'm not just praying for them, speaking of those in the room with them, but for all those who will believe in me through their word. And I love that because that's a portrait of how you and I come to be in the kingdom, that there was this group of ragtag followers that through their word, and that word means, that word in Greek is logos, that's not just the spoken word, but the lived word, both through their spoken message and the the embodiment of Jesus that they passed on to others, it has come down through the centuries to us. And I think it's, uh, it's worth reflecting that anybody who comes after us will come into the kingdom through our word, through our proclamation of faith, through how we live the gospel. So Jesus is saying, I'm praying for the global future church, not just these disciples, all who will come to faith through their word. Verses 21 through 23, that so that they may all be one. This is one of Jesus' highest aims in this prayer. I pray for the future church that they would be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. Right, there's a lot in these three verses. This would be Jesus's answer to that thread on Google, how may we be unified? So we're gonna unpack this uh, bit by bit as we go. Jesus starts out, he says, I pray that they would be one as, Father, you are in me and as I am in you. Now, that's not common language that we use about uh, being in something or someone else, but this is Jesus' Jesus's prayer that we would be one as he is in the Father, the Father is in him. What does that mean? Well, in John 10, 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Now, in that instance, he's talking about their essence. They are of the same essence. This is where we get the idea of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, the word Trinity is, is never used in Scripture. The revelation of the Trinity is actually progressive throughout Scripture, and it actually took several centuries after Jesus' death and resurrection uh, until the Council of Nicaea in the year 325 for the church to kind of wrestle out who and what was Jesus. Was he fully God? Was he also fully man? Was he fully man but partially God? And they had to wrestle with this. And eventually the doctrine of the incarnation was part of what came out of that. But the Trinity became this doctrine of the Orthodox Church for for all of time that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are co-equal, co-eternal members of the Godhead. And essentially they formulated three kind of tenets of what uh, the Trinity means, and I think we have a slide for this, that God is three persons, meaning the, the persons of God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, are distinct from one another. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father. Each person is fully God. 
They don't bring a percentage to the Godhead. It's not like Jesus is 33% God and so on and so forth. They are each fully God. And yet, that third point kind of throws us for a loop. There is one God. Now, to our minds, trying to reconcile those three points can become a bit difficult. But may I remind you that our minds are about the size and consistency of a grapefruit. So there are simply things in God that we will not comprehend this side of eternity, and the Trinity is one of them. That God is one, yet three, and each of the three members of the Godhead are one God and fully and distinctly God. A lot of different directions we could go there. Uh, Wayne Grudem, who's a theologian, he summarizes it this way. There are three distinct persons... And the being of each person is equal to the whole being of God. Now, a lot of implications, but the one I want to hone in on this morning, relevant to this passage, is that God in himself has both unity and diversity. He is in himself both a unity and a diversity. So it's not surprising that that aspect of his character is reflected in human nature. We are made in his image, Genesis 1, 26 through 27. Then God said, now listen to the wordplay in these two verses. Then God said, let us, Father, Son, and Spirit, make man in our image, that first person plural, after our likeness. So God, the one God, created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, singular, male and female, he created them, plural, so you have even the, the, the writers of Scripture here wrestling with this kind of mystical reality in God that he is three and yet one. He makes man singular and plural at the same time, that out of Adam came Eve, and then in the first marriage, the two were brought back into one entity, symbolizing the very nature of God himself. One way to think of that is had just one person existed uh, in isolation, it would have been an incomplete manifestation of the nature of God. One of the reasons God looked at Adam and said, it is not good for you to be alone, not just because of Adam's loneliness, but because of the incomplete reflection of the nature of God himself. Translation, we need one another in order to manifest the glory of God rightly. You see that in marriage most distinctly in terms of that first institution, but then that's a foreshadowing eventually of the church, the people of God. And Paul uses all, and the writers of the New Testament use all kinds of analogies for the church. One of them is a body. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 that in the same way a hand couldn't say to the foot or the eye, I have no need of you. So we as the people of God, we can't say to one another, I have no need of you. We are inextricably linked together. We are a unity and a diversity at the same time. You see this at many other levels. I was just over there worshiping, and our amazing band, just week after week, they come and they lead us into the presence of God. And music is a manifestation of this. You have multiple instruments, multiple voices coming together to form this whole, which is greater than the sum of its parts. Or again, we're watching basketball this week, and how this team comes together unified around one goal, and they become, when they're in that flow, they just become this entity that's greater than than the sum of their parts, or a company, uh, or a family, or any other number of manifestations that God has given in the world to reflect his nature, that he is a unity and a diversity. And here Jesus prays that we would be in God the same way that he is in the Father and the Father is in him. 
Now, how in the world does that become a reality? Well, first and foremost, it means that we have to be in a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, At the fall in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve rejected God's authority, and that relationship, that unity was broken. Now, sin introduced the brokenness that we see in human relationships as well. It fragmented everything. And so the first step of reversal is to repent and to profess faith in Jesus Christ. Because then the scripture teaches that we receive his spirit. That his spirit literally, again, in a, in a, in a mysterious way, comes to live inside every believer. Now, I don't know if you've just sat and pondered that recently. But think, yes, it is, Jimmy. It is big. Think about that. That the spirit of God, a member of the triune Godhead, lives in you and me. Like the God who spun the universe into existence lives in me. And therein lies the only hope we have for unity. And and, uh, Jesus is praying here, God, in the same way that we are triune, I am in you, you are in me, may they be in us, first and foremost, because our spirit, my spirit, is in them. Now, may they be unified in the same way that I am unified with you, Father, and you with me, so that we would become perfectly one. So what does it mean for the church to be one? Well, Jesus and the Father and the Spirit are of one essence, they are of one mind, they are of one purpose. And the same can be true of us insofar as we are filled with the Holy Spirit. That the essence and the purpose and the mind of God is ours in Christ by his Spirit. Now, Paul will break this down in Ephesians 4. I know this is, we'll land the plane, I know a lot of this is uh, very ethereal, up in the clouds. But Paul says this in Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. There is, you say it with me, one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. And that was confusing. I didn't say which part you're saying with me. All the ones, (laughs) bottom line. One, there is one, 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 seven different ones uh, in this passage. One body, spirit, hope, Lord, faith, baptism, and God and Father. And you could summarize that or simplify that saying there's one body, it's the people of God. There's one God, Father, Son, and Spirit show up in these verses. And there's one faith, which includes both hope and baptism. And so you can see a summary statement that when we talk about biblical unity, at the highest level, we're talking about one body of people united to one God through one faith. One body of people united to one God through one faith. Let me pause here. We're going to break this down even further. But before we do, this is our, um, our interactive moment, if you've been here the last couple weeks. So far, turn to somebody next to you. So far, in just about a minute or so, what is your one takeaway that you're hearing me say from this passage? Ready, go. This is engaging the mind, engaging some powers of reflection. Turn to somebody. 30 seconds each. One takeaway so far. Go for it.
All right, 15 seconds. Wrap up that thought. This section over here is by far the most active in conversation. Is this our college students? Is this what's going on over here? Way to go, guys. All right, so we're going to break this down a bit further. Uh, as always, we've got a T-chart uh, to help us uh, compare and contrast. And so we're going to look at what biblical unity is and what biblical unity isn't. All right. First of all, biblical unity is centered on one God, and you can say the one God. Not a popular statement today, but unity is not possible outside of being centered on the God, uh, Yahweh, Father, Son, and Spirit. It is not organized around anything or anyone else. Not to say you can't see pockets of unity. Again, we're made in the image of God, but when we talk about biblical unity, it is centered on the one God. Again, because any attempt at unifying people has to take into account uh, the effects of sin. If you don't take into account the effects of sin, all your attempts at unity are going to be short-sighted. They will be foiled in the end. Another way of saying that is there has to be a center of gravity that overpowers the inertia of sin. By very nature, sin fractures relationship. So if you picture like moons around a planet, that planet has to be substantial enough, that center of gravity, so those moons don't just go flying off in all their direction. We are, we are bent towards selfishness because of sin. And that's really, if you look at all the different attempts at unity around the world today, uh, very few of them take into account original sin and this propensity in humans to be bent towards selfishness. A lot of them assume a fundamental human goodness, and then they scratch their heads when it doesn't work in the end because we're not accounting for sin. And there is, again, only one power sufficient to tame the sin of mankind, and that's the cross. And that's why any attempt at biblical unity has to be centered in a faith in Jesus Christ, Father, Son, and Spirit. Again, there are things that have unified people throughout the ages. World War II was a, a galvanizing force in the United States. You had people putting aside their political differences and their economic differences and unifying around this cause. But eventually the war ended. Or the moon landings, one of my favorite. Uh, amazing feat of human engineering in the thousands, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people who came together to accomplish this. But again... It was in a moment in time. Uh, different people have tried to unify uh, their people around an idea, Marx or Hitler or Gandhi and so on. But at the end of the day, none of these people or events were sufficient. They didn't have sufficient power to unify people over time. Because the spirit of Jesus lives in us, just thinking back to last week, we talked about the right ordering of affections, beliefs, and practices. We have the power to align with him who is a unity in diversity and therefore have the power to unify uh, together. In God alone, we find the substance that gives a purpose for diversity, a cause for unity, and power for longevity. Okay, but further, uh, biblical unity is also a commonly held faith, and it is not relativism. Right, Just pulling this from Ephesians 4, that passage we just looked at, the one God, the one hope, the one faith, the one baptism. And this all flows downstream from the idea that it's centered on one God. Right, You don't get to unity by reducing or watering down beliefs in an attempt to not offend somebody. 
right? We only get to unity by clarifying our convictions. Why? Again, you have to have a center of gravity that holds everything in tension, all right? So what does it mean to have a commonly held faith? Again, there are over 300 major ecclesiastical traditions worldwide. It would seem maybe on the surface the church is more divided than unified, but actually I think there's more going on under the surface. We don't have time to fully break this down. You can look up Al Mohler's Spiritual Triage, great uh, article that he wrote. I'm borrowing this from him. He talks about having first, second, and third order beliefs. I think we've got a slide for that, and I apologize to our graphic designer. I made this this morning, so you can see the distinct difference uh, in the quality of of our... uh, Design uh, aptitudes. That's why we're a body and we stay in our lane. Um, So when it comes to our first, second, third order beliefs, at the very top, you have uh, these first order beliefs, which are our assurances. And this is true of every branch of Orthodox Christianity. So this would be our statement of faith. You can find it online. Is an Orthodox statement of faith that an Orthodox believer, a, a uh, a Catholic, it's nuanced all this, uh, historic Catholic, uh, Eastern Orthodox, and Protestant believers would all agree upon the bodily rec- resurrection of Jesus, for instance. And there are a set of Orthodox Christian doctrines that would be our first order assurances. Now, everything under that, the second layer would be our convictions. And uh, like for Antioch Community Church, we have a deep conviction that the Holy Spirit is still manifesting the full um, suite of gifts that you see in the scriptures today. That's a deep conviction. At the same time, we can worship alongside a, uh, a, a church, an expression of the body, who doesn't share that conviction, but does proclaim Jesus Christ raised from the dead and salvation by grace through faith in him alone. Is this making sense? All right, now at the bottom layer there, you have opinions, right? This may be, I'm talking about spiritual opinions about um, things you see in Scripture. This would be maybe something like, like the frequency of communion, right? You, if you go to different uh, churches, different expressions, you're going to have different opinions about the frequency of communion. Now, some might think that that's more of a second-order conviction, and that's fine. There's room for dialogue within this. And you determine what's first, second, and third order based on biblical clarity and weight, relevance to the character of God, effect on other doctrines and consensus among other believers, both past and present. So this isn't just an arbitrary process of determining what is first, second, and third order. So we are unified in our common faith at the level of first order beliefs. Is this making sense? There's a German theologian uh, from the 17th century, Rupertus Meldenius. I doubt many of you read him for your devotional time this morning. But Rupertus says it this way, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. In essentials, and by that, he means those first-order beliefs. So we would not be unified with somebody at this level, this commonly held faith, with somebody who holds to Muhammad being the prophet of God. We can be charitable to them, but we are not unified in that profession of faith. We are unified with any body of believers that calls on the name of the Lord Jesus to be saved. Right? And then the other uh, orthodox tenets of the faith. This is what it means to be unified, to have a commonly held faith. It also means we aren't disunified over opinions or kind of lower second and third order doctrines, uh, beliefs. And we've seen that throughout the body of Christ. But I would suggest there's actually a phenomenal unity in the body of Christ. And we're seeing that more and more and more 
in our day and age. I think it's okay that we worship in different expressions as long as at the core, at the base, we are blessing one another in our common profession of faith. And essentials, unity, and non-essentials, liberty, and all things, charity. You guys with me? All right, I know we're, we're, we're diving down this morning, and hang in there. We will land the plane, uh, mixing metaphors. Okay, third, biblical unity is a diversity of gifts, services, activities, and thought. It is not a uniformity of gifts, services, activities, and thought. So of the, you know, just take the fivefold uh, gifts in Ephesians chapter 4, that God gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers— I most closely uh, identify with the teacher of, the, of that fivefold uh, gift mix. And people have asked me over the years, you know, what's it like having a teaching gift but being an, at an apostolic and prophetic church? Uh, is that difficult? And I would say, actually, to be transparent, early on, it was kind of hard to find out. I felt at times like a square peg in a round hole. And in my insecurity, I was trying to be like Jimmy in my early years, being this apostolic, uh, exhortational leader. And as my 30s progressed and into my 40s, I'm more and more at home in my own skin in terms of the gifts I bring the body of Christ. But what's happened in my heart is I've come full circle to deeply appreciate Jimmy's leadership as an apostolic prophetic leader. If, if I alone or people like me were leading this church, we would go really deep, but there'd be like 10 of us here, <laughs> right? Jimmy... If he alone was leading this church with no checks and balances, then we'd be in every nation on the planet and just fracturing at every seam. And I say that with just absolute love and uh, honor in my heart. God has given us the body to manifest the different gifts to serve the church so that we would be built up into the wholeness that is Jesus alone. And we need one another. We need the various expressions, the various gifts, and so on. We need everybody in the room, all the diversity, the beautiful diversity represented here. Right? Where, just show of hands. Where are my introverts? Where are you? I called you out first since you love being uh, noticed. Right? That would be me too. Where are my extroverts? Woo! Yeah. All right. Figured there'd be a little whoop there with the extroverts. Right, where are my beach people? You'd rather be at the beach than the mountains, all right? Where are my mountain people, right? And we could literally go down about 150 other, these are silly examples. Uh, we are so different, even in just this room, if we went row by row, we have different socioeconomic realities represented here. Just about every spectrum, even, of the socioeconomic uh, reality is represented in this room. We have so many different ethnic backgrounds represented here. We have so many different cultural upbringing and experiences and just thoughts about some of those second and third order beliefs that are represented here. And only in the church is this possible, guys. Really. Only in the church is this kind of diversity for a long period of time possible because of that center of gravity in the person of Jesus. Right? So long as our... Identity in Christ supersedes any other identity. We can have unity, right? I'm not fundamentally a bear or a horned frog, right? I am fundamentally a follower of Jesus, so I don't have to get all up in arms over the sporting events in the way that some people do. I'm not fundamentally a member of Antioch or Harris Creek. I am fundamentally a follower of Jesus, 
And I also belong to Antioch Community Church, but that follows in the wake of my identity in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. I'm not fundamentally a Wesleyan or a Baptist, and again, we could just go down just about everything that divides us, that list uh, in, in what we subscribe to, what we find our identity in. If we can identify as followers of Jesus, now we can have difficult conversations, meaningful discourse, and maintain unity in the body. All right, last couple points here. Unity is inclusive of all, regardless of background. It is not exclusive of broken people. You have not, again, disqualified yourself from the grace of God. At the same time, it is exclusive, one more point there at the bottom, as to the manner of belonging. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. It is not inclusive as to the manner of belonging. Doesn't matter what you believe, all roads lead to the same point. That is not true in history. That's not even true rationally. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Inclusive of all, exclusive as to the manner of belonging. So again, our kind of summary statement, biblical unity is one body of people united to one God through one faith. Now, why is Jesus praying for this? He says in verse 21, he says, I pray that they may be in us, that they would be one so that the world may believe that you've sent me. He actually says this twice. It's a little bit of a chiasm, if you remember that term, this kind of reflexive nature here. He says in verse 22, the glory that you've given to me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that, again, he says it twice, the world may know that you sent me and have loved them even as you've loved me. And the chiasm there is, I pray that they would be one so the world would believe. And at the bottom, I pray they would be one so the world would believe. And right in the middle, he talks about glory. It's the glory of God at the end of the day that is um, dependent upon the body of Christ being one so that the world would believe. I I remember this... uh, uh, this person, uh, this guy named Doffer, we were in uh, Tunisia back in the early 2000s, and uh, we were there with a short-term trip and and out sharing the gospel. And you know, and if you've lived in, traveled to a Muslim country, it can be some tough sledding in terms of just sharing the gospel on the streets. And we had met this group of guys, and we were sharing with them. They were so hospitable and loved to talk about things of faith, but had all of the standard um, kind of rebuttals to the Christian uh, declaration of faith. And, you know, we, we talked with them for over the period of a couple of weeks. A lot of these guys were unemployed at the time, and so we spent a lot of time with them. And there was kind of a ringleader, but there was this guy that just kind of hung around named Doffer. And, and towards the end of our time there, uh, we were out late one night, past midnight, having tea, and we were walking back to our uh, hotel. And Doffer grabs me by the arm and pulls me down an alleyway and uh, startled me a little bit at first. Uh, but then in kind of a hushed voice, he said, uh, Mick, uh, they call me Mech, actually, in Tunisia. Mech, um, could I have a copy of the Injil, which is the, the New Testament in Arabic? Could I have a copy of the Injil? And he had been kind of one of the most vocal opponents to our professions of faith. And I said, Doffer, uh, absolutely. What, mind if I ask why? He says, I, I do not believe what you have told me all week, but I cannot deny what I see and how you treat one another. 
He said, I have never seen a group of people treat one another. And he said specifically the way you treat your women. I have never seen a group of people. There must be something to this Jesus. Now, he didn't write there and then profess faith, but we sat down with him the next day, began church together. He was still in process, but it was our unity, the expression of the gospel and how we treated one another that was beginning to warm his heart and turn him towards faith in Christ. Jesus ends this passage, this prayer. He says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. This is such a beautiful prayer. He's praying, God, I pray that they would be with me where I am. Where is Jesus about to be? He's about to be in heaven, but he's eventually coming back bodily to establish his kingdom on the earth. He's praying, God, I pray that they would be with me in him as fullness of joy because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these now know that you have sent me. He's saying, essentially, I knew who you were. Obviously, I am of you. I have manifested your name on the earth. Now these disciples know who you are also, and now they are going to take this baton and carry it on. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. By, through his, res, his death, his resurrection, by his spirit, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. And I love that he ends this whole prayer with this idea of love, the love of God. That the love with which you have loved me may be in them. If you could summarize, we've talked about the glory of God, his dominion, his holiness, his unity, can be summarized that all these are expressions of the love of the Father. And as in this culture, as you hear um, attempts at unifying through just simply loving one another, any definition of love that does not contain the nature of God, the person of Jesus Christ, it's an insufficient, incomplete definition of love. Love is in a person. His name is Jesus Christ. Essentially, what I take from Jesus's, this, this portion of Jesus' prayer verses 20 through 26, is that our unity is the greatest revelation of God in the earth today. Our unity, biblical unity in the body of Christ is the greatest revelation of God in the earth today. Yes, signs and wonders. Yes, so many other things, a great band, great worship, but our unity, according to Jesus here, is the greatest revelation of God in the earth today that others might know him. Now, conversely, our disunity is the greatest way to obscure the glory of God in the earth today. Our disunity obscures the glory of God. So how do we get there? How do we unify? Uh, We could talk all about that sanctification model last week, the right alignment of our affections, beliefs, and practices. But honestly, as I was praying this morning, I had one word come to mind, and that's repentance. How do we respond? I feel like the Lord said it it's starts very simply. We repent of our pride, our slander, and our offense. Our own pride, holding ourselves above others. Our slander, the ways that we've torn down other believers in the body of Christ. And our offense, the way we've taken offense at others and put up walls relationally. In just a moment, we're going to give an opportunity to do that, to repent of our, pl- our pride, our slander, and our offense. But I do want to put up a lunch discussion question as you talk as family and friends today, uh, reflecting on this sermon. 
What one step can you take toward unity in the body this week? You, personally, this is where you make it personal, and this isn't just come, listen, go, and live life uh, as usual, but what one step can you personally take toward unity in the body this week? Maybe you need to make a phone call and ask for forgiveness. Somebody you have slandered, and they know about it. Maybe you just need to pray every morning this prayer in, in accord with Jesus, praying for oneness in the body. Maybe you need to have a conversation with somebody different from you and just listen and not talk quite as much. Or maybe you need to get clear on your beliefs. What do I believe? What does it mean to unify around those core beliefs? But one, what one step can you take toward unity in the body this week? Jesus gives us a window into his soul. I gave them the Father. They, the disciples, have given us the Father. What will we leave to this generation coming up behind us? Why don't you stand with me, please, as we respond together? Jimmy, would love for you to come up too. Um, as we respond, got a, a couple ways that are on my mind, and, and first and foremost among those is again repentance. And it doesn't have to be super emotional, but it is a turning in the heart back to Jesus and acknowledging sin, acknowledging and confessing sin in ways that we have been divisive, harboring pride in our own hearts or slandering others or harboring offense. And I don't mean to minimize the offenses. The offenses can be deeply painful, the betrayals. But we give them to God. The Holy Spirit is the salve that heals, and it doesn't start until we bring it to the Father. Uh, secondly, though, I'd love to pray just a moment for unity in the body. And then I'd love for Jimmy to lead out in uh, anybody in here that doesn't yet know Jesus. It starts there, biblical unity in your family, biblical unity in uh, your relationships. And uh, many of you, many of us have a, just a legacy of fractured relationships. And the beginning of the end of that fracturing is to give our lives to Jesus Christ. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to hand it over to Jimmy to help facilitate our responses. Father, we do ask for unity in the body. We agree with you, Jesus. Would we be one, even as you are in the Father, the Father is in you. May we be in you so that the world would know that you were sent and loved in the same way that you were loved. Help us, Father, to be bridge builders in our marriages, with our children, in our life groups and neighborhoods, in our communities and workplaces. Would we unify around our common faith as one body in Jesus' name?